thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. 702 and Cape Talk, The Naked Scientist. Hello, Chris. Good morning. It's wonderful to be chatting to you again. And the science story we're starting off with is really fascinating in relation to TB. I'll let you explain it uh, to the public, but I love the idea of trying to get bad things to potentially do bad things to themselves. That's right. So this is a paper out this week where scientists have discovered a sort of suicide switch, which is present on tuberculosis bacteria, Mycobacterium tuberculosis. And the way this works is that different types of microorganisms make a combination of a toxin, which they secrete, and they also make with it the antidote to that toxin. And the rationale is that all the time that they're healthy and they're making the antitoxin, they neutralise the toxin and all is well. But if there are any sick bacteria that can't make the antitoxin or there are other bacteria that are susceptible to the toxin and don't have the antitoxin, they'll just die. And if the population gets too big, then the bacteria can kill themselves off a bit in order to make sure the fittest survive. And what this group in France, this is Olivier Nerol and his colleagues, have published this week, it's in the journal Molecular Cell, they discovered that if they augment or overactivate the suicide switch or they knock out the ability to make the suicide antidote, the antitoxin, the bacteria very rapidly die. And they've now discovered the structure, the atomic arrangement of this toxin and the antitoxin. So they can now begin to ask, well, can we make some drugs that either block up the antitoxin or increase the activity of the toxin? Because if that were the case, this would be a new way to persuade microbes to kill themselves and destroy themselves. And in a time when we are facing an antibiotic apocalypse, where we're running out of antibiotics because of antibiotic resistance, this sort of breakthrough is really important. But just to sound a cautious note, this is very early days. It's an initial observation. It's an exciting one because it's a new target for scientists to go after to make antibiotic drugs. But it's going to be a long while yet before we're actually seeing something you can put into a patient but from small acorns, big oak trees grow, don't they? <laughs> Absolutely. Patrick, good morning to you. What question have you got for Chris? Yeah, I just want to know from the naked scientist why the rain comes uh, comes down as droplets, not as a splash. And another question is about the hill. Some hill is as small as marbles and some is as big as soccer balls. Can you please explain that to me? Okay, Chris, did you get those pair of questions? They're thematically similar? Uh, I did. Good morning, Patrick. The answer to these questions are that this all comes from clouds, of course. Clouds are a, a great distance above the Earth, and when clouds form, water vapour, which are small clusters of water molecules in the atmosphere rising on warm air currents, they form clouds by getting together or coalescing in the atmosphere or condensing. Because as the air rises... Warm air at ground level is less dense, so it rises. As it goes up in the atmosphere, it expands because the pressure is lower, and as a gas expands, its temperature drops. And eventually you get to a point where the temperature is sufficiently low that the water vapour as a gas cannot exist as a gas in the air anymore, so it begins to coalesce into droplets. 
And we call that a cloud because they all tend to occur at the same place in the atmosphere at a certain height and you see this big bulky puffy cloud. That is full of these tiny water droplets which by then are so cold they're very often frozen. What's holding them up there is that there are strong updrafts of rising warm air currents coming from the warm earth below which are pushing up, holding the water droplets in suspension. Now all the time they're in the cloud they're rising and falling and as they go up in the cloud they can collect other water droplets and they can have other water molecules joining on the outside so the the ice crystal or hydrometeor that's in the cloud can get bigger and bigger and bigger. Now when the updraft becomes insufficiently strong to hold those droplets up eventually gravity wins and you have a rainstorm and they start to fall out of the cloud. Sometimes though the air is sufficiently warm that they fall through that they evaporate before they get to the earth Often, about half the water that fell out of the cloud evaporates and goes back up into the air before it hits the ground. But what you see arriving on the ground are the melted remains of those tiny ice blobs that were in the cloud. Now, sometimes they get sufficiently big because they've made lots of journeys up and down inside the cloud and had lots of water join on the outside that you start with a very big hydrometeor, big hail piece, and it melts partially on its way down but not completely and that's why you get different size pieces of hail and also depending upon the local conditions how quickly the ice crystals form and how quickly they get to fall that determines whether they have a chance to melt or not and of course the ambient temperature determines whether they have a chance to melt on the way down so all those factors play a role in why water drops in blobs and why hail can be very small right up to golf ball sized big chunks that can really do significant damage and injure people 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. You've got a question for Chris? Give us a call. King, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you, sir. I'm good. I have a question for Chris. Um, I just want to find out what are the causes of hand sweats? You know, friends, your hand sweats when you get excited or when you get scared. It looks like there are drops of water that's coming out of your hands. So I just wanted to find is there a physiological cause or is just a genetic condition towards this situation? Mm, interesting question. Sweaty hands, Chris. Hello, King. The answer to this one is that we produce sweat on our skin probably on your fingers a little bit more in order to help you grip, actually, because it helps to to enable the surface of your finger to stick onto a surface. But that that happens because there are supplies from the nervous system, part of the nervous system called the sympathetic nervous system, and specifically a branch of that nervous system called the pseudomotor nerves. And those nerves go into sweat glands. Sweat glands are in the skin and they have a filter system that turns the watery bit of blood into salty liquid that's secreted onto the skin surface and is called sweat. And because it's part of the sympathetic nervous system, and the sympathetic nervous system is part of the system that's used when you do fight or flight, so if someone scares you, if you get nervous, or if you know that you've got a battle on your hands, that's the part of the nervous system that gets activated. You also produce a lot of sweat when you get nervous. And this is in anticipation of having to run away because if you were going to have to run away from something then you would produce a lot of heat and you'd need to lose a lot of heat because all the time that you're getting very hot your body's not working as well as it could so it produces some sweat to help you keep cool. But because you're activating that inappropriately when you're getting nervous you go into a cold sweat because you haven't produced lots of heat but you've still produced the sweat in anticipation and your hands are already maybe a little bit damp and sweaty they're going to get even more sweaty and because they're on exposed surfaces and you're touching things you notice that the sweating from your hands has gone up 
before you notice that the sweat has gone up on other bits of your body because there might be clothes there, for example, to soak up the sweat. So that's the reason. It's to do with a natural sweat production to help lubricate the skin surface and provide a degree of grip, and it's secondarily because when you get nervous, you activate the part of the nervous system that makes you sweat because you're nervous, and that collects on the skin surface and makes your hands a bit more sweaty. There is a condition called hyperhidrosis, and this is where people make far too much sweat, and it can be very debilitating for them, but there are ways to deal with that uh, by switching off some of those sympathetic nerve fibres that are responsible for the sweating. But that needs investigating if you've got that, and if you've got very, very, very sweaty hands, uh, you should go and see a doctor who can uh, maybe advise on how to deal with that. Claire, good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Chris, I'm very curious. Why is it that only some animals molt? Hello, Claire. Well, the answer is that pretty much all animals molt, including humans. And this is all to do with the the growth phases of the hair. And the way in which this works is that the hair comes from specialist structures in the skin called hair follicles. Those hair follicles have stem cells in them that grow and produce a filament of the protein keratin, which which is the hair, to which is added pigment to give it colour. And it goes through three phases. There's an anagen phase, which is when the hair is actively growing. The hair then stops and rests and then falls out in a catagen phase and then the whole thing resets itself. And the length of the anagen phase the growth phase, determines how long the hair can get. So different parts of your body achieve different hair lengths by having different lengths of the anagen phase. Your eyelashes, for example, have an anagen phase of about three weeks. That's good because if they had the same length anagen phase as the hair on your head, which is about three years on average, then you'd have very long eyelashes and you'd struggle to see. Now, animals do exactly the same thing, and they can seasonally augment their coat under certain circumstances to give them a much thicker coat at certain times of the year and a thinner coat at others, and they molt by the hair naturally reaching the end of its growth phase at the end of winter and then the hair dropping out. So it's all to do with how long you make that growth phase, and you can tie that up with the seasons. In humans, we don't seem to have that. We just grow our hair and things at a roughly steady rate all year round, and it is limited to or or controlled by how good your diet is because obviously it's it's a protein-rich material, keratin, it's a protein, and therefore if you don't have enough protein in your diet, your hair's going to get weak and thin and your fingernails are not going to grow very fast. If you have plenty of, of protein in your diet, they're going to grow a bit faster. Full good morning. Welcome to the show. Morning, CBS, Chris, and the listeners. It's to do with perception of motion, rotating motion. Um, you watch your car come along the road he's going right past you at speed all right now the the hubcaps or mag wheels are turning should be turning clockwise but you perceive it as being anti-clockwise and it kind of it's it, it depends on the the speed of the car but he's got to be going quite a, a lick and he's, he's got to be you've got to be able to see him as he passes why is it why is it that you perceive it that it's almost stopped or in reverse yeah hi Phil. Uh, I, I'm with you and I've seen this too and we, we have had this question or a similar one in the past and I'll explain how we answered the similar one we had in the past because that will help you to perhaps apply it to your situation the example that was cited before was cars going down the motorway at night and when you're overtaken by a car going past you and accelerating past you 
at night, you look out of the window and you see the car next door as it goes by, the wheels appear to be the turning very slowly or even, as you say, turning backwards. Now, under that circumstance, the reason for this is because the overhead lights illuminated, um, illuminating the road are powered by mains electricity. The frequency of mains electricity is 50 hertz, which means 50 cycles a second, and that means that the light is effectively going on and off. It's dimming and brightening 100 times a second. So it's illuminating the wheels of the car next door 100 times a second. Now, if the wheels are turning and the car is speeding up, then because the wheels are making a slightly bigger journey each time that they go round because the car is speeding up, if you're getting 100 glimpses a second, your eyes are seeing the wheel in one position and then the next time it's illuminated brightly, they see the wheel has gone around a certain number of revolutions and then a bit more or a bit less, according to your eye. So your brain interprets this as the wheel is either turning very slowly or it's even possibly looking like it's going backwards because the point that started off, say, at 12 o'clock on the wheel has got all the way round and a bit more again. So when you next see it, it doesn't look like it's at 12 o'clock. It looks like it's at 11 o'clock. And then the next time it happens, it's at 10 o'clock. So it looks like the wheel's gone backwards, but it's actually gone all the way round and almost all the way round again. And that's why it looks like it's going backwards. In old television programmes where the film camera was taking 40 or 50 pictures a second, when you watched carts with horses pulling them pull away, you'd notice the wheels looked like they were going forward to start with and then appear to reverse. And that's because, again, the camera is seeing 40 or 50 shots every second. And, uh, and that's why it gives that impression. It's a, a stroboscopic effect. That's why that happens. And I, I think probably when you're noticing this, the same thing is happening. Paul, thank you so much for your question. Appreciate it. Kimberly, good morning. Hi, my favourite two guys. <laughs> Hi, our favourite caller, Kimberly. <laughs> What's your question, <laughs> Faith? I've had, I've had an operation and I can't stand sugar. But what I'm worried about is if the sugar industry goes down and, and all that loss of jobs and that kind of thing and, and stuff like that and people stop eating sugar, what is the, the effect going to be on their bodies? Because I have seen a, a child from birth, the mother stopped, uh, uh, didn't believe in sugar from birth, but the child doesn't look very healthy. Hello, Kimberly. Hmm. Uh, what I would say is that for millions of years, most uh, of our ancestors didn't have access to any sugar. And it's only in the modern era that we have made that possible for them with plants like sugar cane and sugar beet. Now, sugar cane had a very limited geographical availability, as did sugar beets. So it's very much a modern era thing, having access to very sweet things. And we haven't evolved to handle those kind of sweet levels of intake. And that's part of the reason why we have an obesity pandemic going on around the world with more than a third of the world's population overweight or obese now. And, uh, in fact, sugar has a lot to answer for. The reason that the child not given any sugar might have not have looked very well is perhaps that there were other things missing in the diet. Um, sugar is, is OK in tiny amounts, but if you live exclusively on sugar, that's really bad for you. Similarly, if you just cut out things from the diet, it's possible to cut out things that you do need alongside the things that you don't. So it's really important to try to eat a healthy, balanced diet and not subsist exclusively on certain things, especially high-calorie, sugary things. And the reason for, for sugar having a bad rep is because when you have a very sugary thing, like a fizzy drink or something, which is rammed with sugar, the sugar goes into the stomach 
and very quickly is put into the small intestine, which is very efficient at absorbing sugar because we have evolved not to have huge amounts of sugar in our diet. And so sugar is regarded as a premium dietary item. So the bowel is really good at absorbing it. It's also a very small molecule and it goes straight into your bloodstream. And because at the same time having too much sugar in your blood isn't good, the body responds rapidly by producing a big surge of the hormone insulin to bring the sugar down. And insulin encourages cells to pick up sugar and turn it into fat. So if you have a big burst of sugar, you actually provoke your body to go into fat building mode and you then plunge your blood sugar down low again, which makes you feel hungry. So you're then tempted to eat more. So actually, it's a vicious cycle that can make you fatter and less healthy. Mm. So the best thing to do is to eat a, a balanced diet and don't cut out sugar completely, but consider how much of it you're eating and, and certainly limit how much of your intake in energy terms the sugar makes up and try to eat sources of sugar which are in more complicated forms like starches and in, and in fruits. Not, not in excessive amounts, but that means it takes a bit more effort for your body to release the sugar from the foodstuff, which makes you feel fuller for longer. It stops that huge surge of sugar going to the bloodstream and it means that you'll be healthier as a result. Plus, fruit and vegetables got lots of soluble fibre, which is good for the other end of the body as well. Chris, let's take a question from the other side of the world, all the way in Tel Aviv for Chris in England via Johannesburg. Elon, good morning. Uh, hi, hi everyone. Uh, thanks for taking this call. My name is Elon from Tel Aviv. I have a question uh, regarding uh, CO2. Now, we all know that the increase in CO2 in the atmosphere has caused global warming, and we know that planting trees is one of the means of getting rid of CO2 and turning it into carbon. Uh, my question is, are there any other ways of getting rid of CO2 from the atmosphere other than planting trees? Good morning, and, and thank you for taking the trouble to call us all the way from Tel Aviv. I've been to Tel Aviv precisely once, uh, and that was just en route uh, back from South Africa to England, actually. Uh, it was a long story, long journey, uh, but I'd love to go back to Israel sometime, <laughs> so maybe we'll get to meet up. Um, to answer your question, and this is very important, very pertinent at the moment, because we're worried about carbon dioxide, because we are producing more than 30 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide from our activities around the world every single year. And to put that into perspective, it's far, far, far more, you know, in terms of an order of magnitude or more, more than the amount that comes out of volcanoes all over the earth every year. And the greatest source is, of course, industry, heating homes and vehicles because we're burning fossil fuels, coal and oil and gas, and liberating that carbon out into the atmosphere. Now, you quite rightly highlight the fact that we could plant trees, and we do plant trees, and trees are a good way to soak up carbon. They're like a carbon sponge because the trees photosynthesize. They have their own inbuilt solar panels called their leaves, and those leaves do photosynthesis. They capture energy from the sun, and they use the sun's energy to drive a chemical reaction that links carbon dioxide with water and makes glucose. And it's from that glucose that the tree runs its metabolism, or the plant runs its metabolism, and also then builds polymers, wood, that makes the tree. So in the process, you're locking away carbon. But here's the rub. When we cut that tree down, or that tree dies and falls down, that carbon is in a form that nature will release back into the atmosphere. Because when we burn the tree we put the CO2 back into the atmosphere, or when fungi and microorganisms rot the wood down, 
they again release the carbon as carbon dioxide. So planting trees is only a temporary measure. It's a good one in the sense that if you use it as a renewable form of energy, you plant a tree, you grow the tree, you burn the tree, it's carbon neutral. It's not contributing to a net increase in carbon in the atmosphere, but it's not actually removing carbon from the atmosphere and locking it away like it was in the first place in the form of oil and coal locked away geologically underground. And a few weeks ago, we explored uh, with a scientist in Edinburgh a story which was in the journal Nature Energy, where they were looking at actually um, scavenging carbon dioxide from the air and then putting it underground in a form where it would stay underground in the old geological formations that had once sequestered gas, for example. So the idea here is that uh, the only way to really reverse what we're doing is to capture the CO2 back from the atmosphere and then chemically lock it into something like rock or apply it under pressure underground in, in the form of CO2 into a stable geological formation where it won't come out again. But in the long run, we have to worry about this because we have enormously increased the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by um, probably about 30 or 40% in the last couple of hundred years. And you cannot change the composition of the atmosphere by uh, a third in such a short time and not expect there to be consequences, because there will be. Brandon, what's your question? Hi, good morning, and thanks for having me. My question is... I can understand outliers like Leonardo da Vinci would be able to understand Python programming and that kind of thing of, of today's technology. But generally, is our population generally get, getting smarter? Um, yeah, a good question, Brandon. You're clearly smart. There is a phenomenon called the Flynn effect. And this is after Professor Flynn, I think from the University of Otago, he's where he works, in New Zealand. And the point that he made in his studies was that if we set an intelligence test for people today and we measure their IQ, we get what we call the average IQ, 100. If we did this 50 years ago uh, and said, well, how is intelligence increasing? We would have said that people 50 years ago were borderline morons or idiots or something. Um, they weren't. That everyone, everyone was fine. The point he's making is we're not very good at interpreting what we call intelligence. And people have always been intelligent. They've always been resourceful. And if you think about it, the people who evolved to become who we became, they were exceptionally good at surviving in the most inhospitable, horrible environment in, in bits of Africa where everything was trying to eat you. And that's part of the reason we evolved a big brain in the first place, because that way we could outwit the things that were trying to eat us. And then, you know, our early or our, our, our ancestors that made their way to Australia, the Aborigines, 40, 50,000 years ago, and survived in some of the harshest terrain there for 40, 50,000 years. Incredible resourcefulness and resilience. Those people are not thick. If you were to ask them to set an, sit an intelligence test, though, you'd conclude that they had a very low IQ because they wouldn't understand the test. So we have to be really cautious about how we actually set these tests, how we work out what IQ is. As far as we know, um, we are every bit as intellectually able as we always have been. What we are better at doing now is passing on information, sharing information and, and having more to learn. And I think we're getting better at education as well because the way we teach also makes a big difference to how much people know and, and how uh, able they are to realise their potential. A slightly woolly-wordy answer, but the bottom line is I think we are better endowed with knowledge today, but there have always been bright people and hopefully there always will be bright people. Thanks for the teachings, Chris. We're all slightly cleverer now. Oh, there you go. Our IQ has gone up collectively. <laughs> we're, all, we're all above average now, as one politician said to once and, and then realised what he'd said afterwards. Have a beautiful week ahead. We'll chat again next week. Bye, Eusebius. 
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.